show may contain my tips for making money on Bitcoin. It won't. It also may contain explicit language, and it really might. It's Wednesday, March 27th, 2019 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. So you got the laissez-faire theories of markets, which is pretty much the open markets theory, libertarian theory. It's the governing theory of most of the right. And it says something like, the markets will correct themselves. We don't need excessive regulation because businesses that offer products and services will be properly incentivized to make good products and services because if they made bad products and services, then the customers will know it and the customers won't buy it and the customers won't patronize it and the companies will suffer. You see, you see how all the incentives align and the consumer doesn't need to be protected by anyone outside that virtuous loop. That might be an interesting theory to float maybe the first time anyone ever tried to sell anyone anything, the first time capitalism was invented. You know, I'm sure someone was there saying, wait a minute, you're going to sell the things, but shouldn't we make sure the things aren't going to hurt anybody? And then the laissez-faire capitalists said, no, 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 don't worry, don't worry. No one will want to buy a crappy product, so no company will make one, or the people who want the inferior product, they will know it, and they'll live with it. That last part about some people maybe wanting an inferior product, that imagines that capitalism was invented for the purposes of selling the product Sunny Delight, just so you know. So you would think that this idea would maybe be put out into the world once and then quickly the data would come in. Because to mention a few recent counterexamples of laissez-faire capitalism working out, uh, thalidomide, the Dalcon Shield, the Corvair, the Takata Airbags, Agent Orange, Asbestos, Goodyear Radial Tires, Galaxy 7, Viax, and going all the way, all the way back, all that poison gin in 18th century England. So what I'm saying is you need some regulation. But then it comes to air travel. And I would think if anything contradicts the need for government regulation, you definitely want some government regulation, but... You would think that the laissez-faire argument would really, really fit into something like air travel. Because if anything goes poorly in air travel, a lot of people would die. Air travel has been so safe for so long in the United States. Every couple of years, I do a story on this, how long it's been since a major air disaster in the U.S. It's part of my thesis that things are getting better, yet we're all getting madder. But what I'm saying is you would think that, broadly speaking, the laissez-faire idea of businesses regulating themselves, if it were to be accurately applied anywhere, it would be applied to air travel. Not that it should be, and we definitely have to have, you know, people checking and inspecting, but it seems like a good argument that if your planes don't work, surely you're going to hear about it. And it won't be from a collection of studies talking about the pernicious effects of your planes gradually not working. It won't be about something like particulates in the lung. It will be about your planes falling out of the sky, right? You're not going to get, the CDC said today, that even slight exposure to your airplane falling out of the sky over the course of 20 years could have deleterious effects on the body, most of those effects highly concentrated during the exact period that your plane falls out of the sky. So this is why I've been watching with curiosity the Boeing story, where you have two MAX 8 aircraft that have crashed within the last six months, and the entire model of uh, Boeing aircraft has been grounded. And you would think if anyone is incentivized 
to have those Boeing planes not crash. It is, well, the people flying the planes, the people on the planes, but also Boeing. With that in mind, today, the head of the FAA testified before the Senate Committee on Commerce, Science, and Transportation, the uh, Subcommittee on Aviation, and there, Daniel K. Elwell, who is himself a pilot, was asked by Mississippi Senator Roger Wicker what he would have done as a pilot if he was in the cockpit of one of those Max 8 aircrafts when the nose was dipping. Mr. Elwell, what should they have done? What should the pilot have done? Based on uh, 21 times um, the system kicking in, pushing the nose down. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I did not fly the 737, so I can only speak to the airplane, all the different airplanes I flew. But in when you well, have... Well, I'm, I'm actually asking about this aircraft. Do you know? If you don't know, that's fine. Oh, sorry, I'd have to get back to you on, I, on the, uh, the specific. There is a non-normal checklist, an NNC well, on that, runaway that would be It would be helpful for us to know, based on the expertise mm -hmm. at this table, mm -hmm. uh, what uh, should have occurred in the cockpit based on uh, that nose-down input. That's actually understandable. But it has emerged, and this is bothersome, it has emerged that Boeing and other manufacturers do this too. They actually charge extra for safety features. There's something called the angle of attack indicator, and a lot of experts are saying that it could have warned the pilots of the planes that crashed if there was a malfunction in the new software system they were using. And the Ethiopian Airlines plane, at least, didn't want to pay extra for this angle of attack indicator. And so now it's down, and look, look what Boeing has to deal with. Guys, this isn't like selling the undercoating for the Toyota Tercel. You would think that if this thing could stop a crash, Boeing would want to get it into the hands of all the people who might crash. Here's another one. A second fire extinguisher in the cockpit. Yet they charge extra for that. Why not have two, right? Or here's an insane one. They charge extra for oxygen masks for the crew. What, are you going to not have oxygen masks for the crew? What if someone decides we'll go without the oxygen masks? I would hope Boeing would step in and say, you know, it would reflect extremely poorly on Boeing if the crew passes out after the cabin becomes depressurized because you didn't want to spring for the extra oxygen masks for the crew. Look, listen to me. I'm the kind of traveler who has never paid a cent more for legroom or early boarding time. I mean, that one I think is crazy. Oh, early boarding time. What are we, the Queen of England? But I, I do sympathize with the airlines in this case. They're getting upcharged also. It seems kind of insane and irresponsible and, yes, a refutation of classic market theory. But who am I to judge? I'm the guy who would rather taste my knees on a cross-country flight than pay an extra 40 bucks for the upgrade. On the show today, in the spiel, ridiculous Republican politicians take to the legislative floor and lower said floor just a little bit. But first, Buster Douglas pulled off one of the greatest upsets in boxing history, beating Iron Mike Tyson. Now, if you don't realize how dominant Iron Mike Tyson was at the time, or how dominant and how undefeatable he seemed to be. It's hard to describe without getting almost mythical. There's an ESPN documentary, it's in their acclaimed 30 for 30 series, that catches up with Buster Douglas, talks about the fight, and analyzes how long the odds were for him. Not just analyzes it, the doc is actually named after the odds. It's called 42 to 1. ESPN's Jeremy Schapp, 
reported and co-directed the film. And he goes one-on-one, about 42 to 1, up next. All right, 42 to 1 is the name of the new, okay, let's be honest, it's not that new, but it is on demand, 30 (laughs) for 30 entry into the greatest upset in boxing history. It was the time when Buster Douglas in Tokyo, Japan, knocked out Mike Tyson, which seems like, because we know that it happened, possible, but I'm telling you, if it was 1990, we would contradict that assertion. Joining me now is Jeremy Schapp, who is the co-director of this entry into the great 30 for 30 series. Jeremy is also, as many credits with ESPN, chief among them. He's a correspondent for E60, meaning that he only does numerical shows for the All Sports Network. Thank you <laughs> for joining me, Mr. Schapp. It's, it's a booking a long time in the making. It's a pleasure that you could finally squeeze me in. <laughs> is that how it worked? <laughs> that's, that's pretty much how it worked, but here we are. Give me a sense, or give us a sense, of the mythic proportions that Mike Tyson had already assumed by early 1990. Well, he is at this point in time, he's only 23 years old, but he's been the heavyweight champion for about three and a half years, holding at least a portion of the championship since 1986, the youngest heavyweight champion of all time. He unifies the titles. Um... When he defeats Michael Spinks, he might have actually unified them before that when he beat Trevor Burbick. But anyway, the point is he was the unified heavyweight champion of the world. He was the undisputed heavyweight champion of the world. And much more than that, he was considered simply invincible because he wasn't just beating people. He was crushing them. He was knocking out the likes of Michael Spinks in 91 seconds. He was 37-0 and at this time with 34 knockouts. And honestly, there had not been anyone who seemed this indestructible among the heavyweights Perhaps ever. So this is the, another point. He was seen as invincible and atop the division in no other way. Maybe, and I remember at the time, the only way you could put him into context was to compare him to people who were dead or people who had retired from the sport. But it is the case that maybe he wasn't as good a fighter as pick Muhammad Ali or pick George Foreman. But the only reason that he was seen as so invincible is there was no one the heavyweight division wasn't as littered with talent as it was in years Look, past. Look, uh, clearly, I mean, you know, these things are always complicated because, like, well, maybe some of these guys he fought, you know, they, they were guys who would have been considered and had been considered legitimate before he beat them. A guy like Tony Tucker, you know. You know, but it, it wasn't— um, it wasn't this incredible wealth of talented heavyweights that we saw, say, 10 years earlier, where you're talking about Foreman and Frazier, as well as Ali and Norton and uh, Larry Holmes coming into his own and Ernie Shavers and names like that that resonate more. But Tyson was fighting everybody. He was destroying yeah. them. And the title of the documentary, 42 to 1, those were the odds in Vegas. But could you get those odds? Were they readily available or was it off the board? Well, you know places? a lot more about wagering than I do, Mike. And, you know, what I will say is there were odds. Yeah. It was 42 to 1. It, they opened, I think, at 27 to 1. There was only one book. It was Jimmy Vaccaro's book, At the Mirage. They decided they were going to take action on this fight. They put it 27 to 1. No money on the underdog. They put it at 35 or 36 to 1, no money on the underdog. 
just before the fight, it goes all the way up to 42 or one. Suddenly they're getting some money on the underdog and bets as large as $1,500 on the underdog. At the same time, they were getting as much as, according to Jimmy, he tells us in the film um, that somebody bet at 42 to one, what is it, $160,000 on uh, on Tyson. Right. So what was the what was the key to Buster Douglas's? All right, I guess we'll skip all couple rounds of the fight. But what was the key to Buster Douglas's victory? What did forget the names and the reputations? Tell me what the fighter who won did better than the fighter who lost. Well, the fighter who won the fight, he established his jab early. He matched Tyson in terms of aggressiveness. He uh, beat him to the punch frequently. He refused to back down. I mean, you know, this is the psychological element of it more than anything else, but he really wasn't afraid. Right. And and all most of these other guys had been defeated before they got into the ring with Mike Tyson. And for whatever reason, Buster Douglas, a guy who, you know, his own uh, corner would tell me wasn't sure, Buster, in his own mind, that he would beat Tony Tucker, and he ended up losing. Wasn't sure that he would beat Greg Page, and he did beat Greg Page. Always thought always believed that he would beat Mike Tyson. Because From why? the time he, Tyson, because he's a bigger man. Yeah, that is He's true. a better athlete. Yeah. And what he saw, and he was on a number of the undercards, those big Tyson fights, including the Sphinx fight in yeah. 88, what he saw was guys who weren't even trying. How did the fight change Mike Tyson? Well, for Mike, someone whose identity was so wrapped up in being the heavyweight champion of the world, that's all that he'd ever set his sights on. Uh, to have that taken away, and in the fashion that it did, I, I think must have been at some level emotionally devastating. But there was so much else going on in his life, too, and it's so messed up. And I think Mike was also confident enough athlete to say, hey, look, all the greats have lost. You know, Lewis lost. Dempsey lost. Tunney lost to Greb. You know, only Marciano never lost. Right. So, you know, he, he understood that it didn't mean the end of him as a fighter, but it certainly, it certainly shattered the aura about him. How the fight changed Buster Douglas? Well, unfortunately, you know, in some senses, these things are all too predictable in the world of boxing. The success creates complications. In the months following the fight, you know, his corner changes. Everybody's trying to figure out, you know, how they're going to get their piece of the millions that are coming his way. Buster Douglas gets, at the time, the biggest paycheck in the history of sports— $24 $24 million to fight Evander Holyfield, which is the equivalent of about $48 million today. Biggest, nobody, nobody's ever made money like that. You know, uh, you know, the biggest baseball star, the biggest football star, nobody's ever made money like that. And it's still um, more than the biggest basketball. It's more than Steph Curry gets paid right now. Exactly. Yeah. And, and not um, adjusted for inflation. Adjusted for inflation is literally right. bigger than every athlete, except maybe another boxer who gets a cut right. of the pay. Yeah, for what yeah. you know, what Mayweather and Pacquiao right. got, right. and that kind of stuff. But um, you know, he ends up um, signing signing to fight Holyfield in the fall. Gets the big money. He's fighting Don King in court about his promotional deal. He's losing his motivation. He's got troubles at home as well, and he shows up. Totally out of shape, totally unmotivated for that fight in the fall. When if he had, he didn't even have to beat Evander Holyfield, but if he'd put up a good fight, he would have gotten maybe $20 million for a rematch against Mike Tyson. Right. But if he had put up a good fight, 
you could argue it a couple ways. If he gets the $20 million, maybe what happens to that $20 million is what happened to the $48 million, yep, which is he loses it all. Totally true. Then again, if he's the kind of guy who takes it seriously or somehow can find can fight through his demons, maybe he's also not the kind of guy who loses and his Buster, money. You know, Buster ends up gaining hundreds of pounds, hundreds, yeah. diabetic coma, beats that, comes back, fights again in the late 1990s, an ill-conceived uh, comeback attempt. And, um, you know, when I was dealing with Busters, we were putting this together over the course of, I guess, like the last year now or so. Um, he's working in the rec center in Columbus. He's a boxing instructor with kids and adults. And I'm guessing, you know, he's making, you know, fifty-five, sixty thousand dollars $60,000 a year, something like that on Columbus City wage. Yeah. And I think he's happier now than he was when he had millions in the bank. And, and he, he literally had, has no, that's what, that's the money he lives on. He has no money. That's from. my understanding. Yeah. Yeah. He does make some appearance money, I should right. say. So does Mike Tyson hate talking about this fight? You know, in my experience, and I've talked to Mike a bunch about it over the years, he doesn't hate talking about it. In fact, you know, I interviewed him in the summer of 2017 about it, or, or about a lot of things, but also about this fight. And he was good. I mean, I mean, he was good talking about it. He talked about it at length. Ultimately, we decided not to include that interview in uh, the film. Mm -hmm. And part of it was it was kind of fresh, but it wasn't totally fresh. He seemed to be that day um, in a lot of pain. He was suffering from back pain. And he, he just didn't add much, we really thought, to the narrative of it. I had asked for a fresh interview, which he wouldn't give us. But we did have this relatively fresh interview, twenty probably about 20 minutes on the fight, where he talked about it. And... Mike tends to overwhelm whatever you put him in, you know? He, yeah. he sucks the air out of the room. And and there's a lot of Mike Tyson in the film, but it's all contextual. It's all Mike Tyson from 1984 to 1990. And ultimately, we made a decision. I'm sure some people disagree with it. Uh, but as a film, this was about Buster. We've all heard Mike's story. Nobody's told Mike's story, I feel like, more than I have over the years. More interviews, more stories, <laughs> more conversation. I probably interviewed him, I don't know, 65, 70 times. And, and I wanted this, I, I wanted to keep the focus on the other guy. Yes. So I asked you how to change Tyson, how to change Douglas, how to change boxing. That's a good question. And I haven't really thought about how it changed boxing. I mean, it, it, you know, how it changed the business of boxing. I don't know how it changed, certainly changed, you know, what we would see over the course of the next decade in boxing. Um, because, well, it is true you know, that boxing is a sport, you know, every, everything that happens is dependent on the last fight, you know, right. as we talked about, you know, in your book as well, you right. know, it, it doesn't make a difference if Jack Fleck or Ben Hogan, you know, wins the U S open playoff. There's still going to be a U.S. open the following June wherever they decided. It's not how it works in boxing, you know, Buster Douglas knocks out Mike Tyson. There, ain't gonna, there isn't going to be a Tyson-Holyfield fight coming up. So this is the last thing I want to ask you, which is, in my lifetime, there have been, I think, three athletes where this, what I'm about to say applies to, which is, they're so good and so dominant, you don't even bother comparing them to anyone doing their sport at the time they're doing it. And those three athletes were Michael Jordan, were Pelé, and we're Mike Tyson. I guess you could add Secretariat, but he's a horse. Now, now, subsequently, you can make the LeBron is better than Michael Jordan case. You can make the Lionel Messi is better than Pele case. Maybe with Tyson, you have to go back to the past, but no one since has been better than Tyson. Or is this just romanticism when it comes to Tyson? Well, I think now, because of what happened, uh, and it's a process that starts with Buster Douglas defeating him in February 
1990s, I like to keep saying in a deep kind of John Facenda <laughs> way. <laughs> February 11th, 1990, the Tokyo Dome. Um, now we look back Tyson differently. You know, if at the time many people thought he was the greatest fighter who'd ever lived, now a lot of people would say he's not a top 10 heavyweight. Yeah. And uh, it's because he lost to Holyfield twice. He lost to Lewis. What are his big wins? His big win is Michael Spinks, another blown up light heavyweight, which is not not fair entirely to Michael Spinks, but that's the kind of thing people say. Tyson, if you look back at it now, it's like, okay, he destroyed all these guys. He was exciting, but these guys were carefully picked. He was he was the time managed uh, by, you know, very savvy uh, guys in, in uh, Customato and Jimmy Jacobs and Bill Caton who built him up into this phenomenon and, and um, you know, created this aura around him, which he also had a large hand in creating as well, what, what he did in the ring. But looking back at it now... I mean, can you argue that he's better than Evander Holyfield? Well, Evander Holyfield beat him twice. Can you argue that he's better than Riddick Bowe? They never fought, but Riddick Bowe beat Holyfield two out of three times and probably would have won that other fight if the fan man thing hadn't happened. You know, that, I mean, all the crazy stuff that ha- yeah. happens in boxing, Lennox Lewis destroys him when they're the same age. You know, they're always going to be the same age, but, you know, when they, when they finally do um, meet up with each other. So, you know, I, I would add um, to your list, though, at his peak, Eldrick Woods. Yes, Tiger. That is true. I like to say Eldrick, though. <laughs> yes. More dramatic. Eldrick Tiger. <laughs> yes. That's a good point. He was, in many ways, the secretariat of his day. <laughs> Jeremy Schapp is a correspondent for ESPN, primarily their E60 show, and his documentary, 42 to 1, is available on all ESPN platforms that will let you watch a documentary that has recently aired, but is still available <laughs> for viewing. You know the platform. I, I, think, I think I do. Yeah. <laughs> Jeremy. Jeremy, thank you so much. Michael, pleasure. <laughs> pleasure, as always. And now the spiel. Brothers and sisters, let us pray. Jesus, I thank you for this privilege, Lord, of letting me pray, God, that I, Jesus, am your ambassador here today. That was a clip from the Holy Calvary Baptist Church. No, wait, no, wait. It was the Church of Christ, the Lord, Redeemer, Holy Body, Fellowship Ministry, Temple of Praise. No, wait, wait, I got that wrong. That was... Thank you for this honor, Jesus. That was the Pennsylvania legislature. The opening prayer by Representative Stephanie Barowitz, whose safe word is Jesus. Jesus. Who uses Jesus the way some people use, uh, or know what I'm saying? Thank you, that Jesus. But at issue here is not just excessive Jesusosity, not just a state rep who sneezes Jesus, but more pointedly, this was the opening of a session where hours later, Pennsylvania's first Muslim woman was to be sworn in as a representative. Now, Some would hear all this Jesus talk and think that it was motivated by an offense to Muslims. She she apologized to Jesus for straying from his words so many times. But, you know, theologically, Muslims like Jesus. To them, he is a prophet, a very, a very respectable prophet. To the Jews, however, Jesus was just another Jewish guy who was the victim of a hate crime. The great I am, the one who's coming back again, the one who came died and rose again on the third day. 
and I'm so privileged. Yeah, not everyone is on board with that take on historic events. Just FYI. Then there came the part where Rep Barowitz did some shout-outs. A few of the about-to-be-named officials distanced themselves afterwards, but let's give her the floor. God, I pray for our leader, Speaker Terzai, Leader Cutler, Governor Wolf, President Trump. Lord, thank you that he stands beside Israel unequivocally, Lord. You know what? That bit reminded me of someone else who praised President Trump in a similar way. So... Representative Barowitz said, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, Jesus, that you are Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Wait, that's what Omarosa said about Donald Trump himself. Every critic, every detractor will have to bow down to President Trump. And there was another resonance in the representative's invocation. So this is a visual. Let me uh, explain what you're looking at as Rep Barowitz stood there. She's a brown-haired woman in a flowing white garment cinched at the waist with bell sleeves. So when she said, Jesus, you are our only hope. Well, R2, play that video again. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. Apparently, the representative was quite worried that we would forget what she was talking about. Jesus, we've lost sight of you. We've forgotten you, God, in our country. And we're asking you to forgive us, Jesus. Oh, Jesus. But you know, it wasn't the only Star Wars reference on the floor of a legislative body in the last couple days. Senator Mike Lee, Republican of Utah, rose to the floor of the U.S. Senate to point out the excesses of the Green New Deal. And he brought visuals. There was Aquaman on a 20-foot seahorse said to represent, no, not the rise of the oceans, but how to travel to Hawaii. Mm -hmm. There was Ronald Reagan on a raptor, not Serge Ibaka, the extinct animal. What better way to register that he thought the Green New Deal to be a bit fanciful. And then came the Star Wars part. How, he asked, if we don't have airplanes, as the Green New Deal would mandate, he asserted, how do we get around Alaska? In a future without air travel, how are we supposed to get around the vast expanses of, say, Alaska? during the winter. Well, I'll tell you how. So there was the senator displaying a large picture of Luke Skywalker on the space kangaroo from Empire Strikes Back. It is called a tauntaun, and the senator proceeded with his taunting. Tauntauns, Mr. President. This is a beloved species of repto mammals, native to the ice planet of Hoth. I thought that argument smelled bad from the outside. Okay, so Lee made his point. The GND is ridiculous, so I'll be ridiculous. That's what he was saying in terms of execution. There were some okay jibes in his speech. It went on too long. It was about as third as clever as he thought it was. That is okay. Senators don't usually hit so large a fraction. Now, you could argue this issue, global warming, is so serious. You can't joke about it. What are you, the middle act at Ho-Ho's in Youngstown? I would argue that if you are going to try to be the middle act at Ho-Ho's in Youngstown. Bringing large posters is just a step away from prop comedy, sir. And prop comedy is unbecoming to even a staunch global warming denialist. But if I were being as generous as I could be to Mike Lee, I would say up to this point where he talked about Aquaman and Reagan on a raptor and, 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 and the Tauntaun, I would say... I disagree generally with what you're saying. I'm not a big fan of the Green New Deal either, but this whole little bit wasn't horribly done. And then he got to the end, which means 
he got to the babies. It was literally a Mrs. Lovejoy, what about the children moment. He hauls out a picture of five babies in diapers, and Lee concludes that he has the solution, babies. This is the real solution to climate change. Babies. Babies? Babies. Jesus. Jesus. Stop. Just stop. Lee went on to say that we have to populate ourselves out of the problem. He said the courage needed to solve climate change is nothing compared with the courage needed to start a family. And then he added, And problems of human imagination are not solved by more laws. They're solved by more humans, more people. I have no visual to accompany this next point. I will just quote from the government of Bangladesh's climate change strategy and action plan. Quote, in an average year, approximately one quarter of the country is inundated with floodwaters. Every four to five years, there is a severe flood that may cover over 60% of the country. A three-foot rise in sea level would submerge almost 20% of the entire country and displace more than 30 million people. Some scientists project a five to six foot rise by 2,100, which would displace perhaps 50 million people. Yes, people. The solution? Don't know. Clearly will be the victims. So Senator Lee, your glibness, your do-nothingness, and your repeated belief in magical thinking are not going to take us anywhere. I don't know what to say other than, no, no, I'm not saying Jesus. I'm saying that you guys should pray you can come up with something better than that. That's it for today's show. With a combined record of 36-2-0, with 29 of those wins coming by knockout, weighing in at a combined 338 pounds and standing 11 feet 10 inches tall, producing the gist, Pierre Bienname and Daniel Schrader. And fighting out of the red corner, from parts unknown, is senior producer of Slate Podcasts, Terrible, Jeopardous Raphael. The gist, we lost most of that sweet podcasting money to unscrupulous executive producers, but we can still be found these days teaching elocution and interviewing to the next generation of podcasters at the Columbus, Ohio Rec Center. And you know, some people say we've never been happier. We are still, however, suing. Oompa-roo-da-poo-doo-poo, and thanks for listening. <laughs>